Matthew and Luke are the gospel writers that give us some of the backstory to the birth of Jesus, but they approach it in very, very different ways. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man, and so he traces the genealogy of Jesus right back to Adam. And when, when Luke talks about the birth of Jesus, he talks about it against the backdrop of the taxation system. It's kind of this burden on the ordinary man, and Luke presents Jesus being born in that context. Well, when we turn to Matthew, we see a slightly different angle. Matthew is talking primarily to a Jewish audience, and he presents Jesus as the promised Messiah, the king that was to come. And we see that as Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus back to Abraham with David figuring highly right in the middle of that genealogy. And so when Matthew talks about the birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, he does it against the shadow of another king, King Herod the Great. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Herod in just a moment, but before we get there, I really want us to focus on this passage on the three different reactions to the birth announcement of Jesus, because I think these three reactions sum up our reactions today as we begin to talk about the Christmas story. So the first reaction is this, apathy. Apathy is one of the reactions we see in this story, and it's the reaction of the teachers of the law. So here's what happens. The Magi, these men from the east, come into Jerusalem, and they probably didn't come alone. There probably wasn't just three of them. There's probably a whole entourage of people and supplies and gifts and whatever they brought because they caused quite a stir coming into Jerusalem, so they would have been noticed. They come up to King Herod and they make this wild announcement. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. And Herod panics a little bit, but then he decides to gather together the teachers of the law, the Jewish teachers, and ask them, where is the one that's supposed to be born as the Messiah? And the teachers of the law give him an answer. But it's very strange the way they do it. They simply state the facts. Basically, they say, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And then nothing, no further reaction, no action on their part. They don't get all excited. They don't, you know, bring out the trumpets and rush to Bethlehem. They just state the fact. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And that's it. It's kind of a non-reaction. It's kind of an indifference to the story. But these are the ones that were supposed to be watching and waiting for the coming Messiah. These are the ones that knew the scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They should have seen the signs and been excited at the announcement. Why weren't they? You know, we assume they've been watching and waiting, but maybe they just got caught up in the regular stuff of life. That's what we talked about last week. Or maybe they were just trying to keep the peace because they didn't want to draw attention to themselves because Rome did not like any kind of uprising or any kind of stir or commotion. They must have known some of the prophecies. Listen to this one from Isaiah chapter 60. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your star, or your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So when these teachers of the law saw these men coming from the nations, bringing gold and incense and talking about a star, that should have been a clue. But they were indifferent. They were apathetic to the whole announcement. There's an old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And it's not always true. Sometimes familiarity is a very good thing. But sometimes when it comes to sacred things, when we become too familiar, we begin to lose the interest. We begin to lose the power. We begin to lose that sense of awe and wonder at what God is doing right among us, right before our very eyes. I wonder if that was what was happening to the teachers of the law. Well, their apathy, their indifference caused them to miss Christmas. So let me ask you today, how do you feel about this story? I mean, depending on your age, you've heard it year after year, maybe multiple times a year. It's the same words, it's the same trees, it's the same uh, trappings and celebrations. How do you feel about the story today? Do you feel a little bit of apathy building up in your soul? That sense of been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, let's move on. I want to encourage us to resist that apathy, to reinvest in the story again, to rediscover it afresh during this Christmas time. Let me ask you, does apathy keep you from worshiping the King of Kings? Another reaction that we find in the passage is anxiety. And it's the reaction of Herod the Great. I want to tell you a little bit about Herod, because he's a fascinating character and he held power for quite a long time in the region. Herod was the king of Judea, but he was king because of the authority of the Roman Senate. So he was kind of a puppet king, even though he had a lot of power. It might be interesting for you to know that he was also president of the Olympic Games. He loved the Olympics. He loved to build stadiums for the Olympics, and he loved sport. That might not be a title you're familiar with, Herod, president of the Olympic Games, but he was. But he was most known for his building projects. He did amazing things all throughout the region. One of the things he did is he built a port where there should never have been a port in Caesarea, and he did so by using hydraulic cement for underwater construction. I find that fascinating. He also expanded the temple, which won him the favor of many of the Jewish people. Because if you remember after exile, they rebuilt the temple, but a lot of people were quite disappointed with the way it turned out. So Herod expanded the temple and beautified it and made it something that the people could be proud of. He also built a number of fortresses and one of the famous fortresses that he built was called Masada. And some of you might know the story. If not, go look that up. But Herod also built a beautiful palace. He called it Herodium, and it ended up being his burial place as well. Herodium was just a stone's throw 
from Bethlehem. In fact, Herodium was built on a, an artificial mound so that it would be elevated above the region. So Jesus was actually born in the shadow of Herod's palace in many, many ways, even though Herod wasn't in the palace at the time. Well, there was also a dark side to Herod. Herod had a certain paranoia about him. He was so paranoid at one point that he ended up murdering his favorite wife. He had a number of wives, but he ended up murdering his favorite wife, her two sons, her brother, her grandfather, and her mother. Caesar Augustus was actually a friend of Herod, if you can imagine that. And he was quoted as saying, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his sons. And in Greek, it's a little bit of a play on word between pig and sons. But the idea was, you were safer as a pig in Herod's household because he didn't eat pork, but you were not safe to be one of his sons. And so that's kind of the level of darkness and paranoia and brutality that we find in King Herod. So when we find in our passage that Herod has commanded the killing of the innocents of these boys under the age of two in Bethlehem, we should not be surprised. So even though we don't find it in Josephus or some of the other histories, it's not out of character for Herod to demand this. In fact, in Bethlehem at the time, there wouldn't have been hundreds of boys. There might have been six or seven in that age range. Doesn't make it any less awful, but that's the reality of what Herod demanded, and it's very much in keeping with his character. What was his fear? What was Herod so afraid of? Well, as you look at his life and you look at his history, we can deduce this. Herod did not want to be overshadowed or forgotten. When Herod was dying, he actually arranged, or he wanted to arrange, for a number of very influential Jewish people to be brought into a theater. And when Herod died, all of those people were supposed to be killed at the same time. Herod's big fear is that when he died, nobody in Judea would mourn his death. So he wanted to make sure that people were crying when he died, so he wanted all these other people killed. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Somebody stopped it. But it gives insight into his character. So you can imagine when the Magi come and they say to Herod, where's he that's born king of the Jews when Herod already has that title? He's going to have some anxiety. He's going to have some fear. And that fear is going to keep him from going and worshiping this new king. What's your fear this Christmas time? What is the anxiety that wells up inside you as you approach the Christmas season? Does that anxiety have so much power that it actually keeps you, it prevents you from engaging in the worship of Jesus Christ as we celebrate his birth at this Christmas time? What are you afraid of? So we have the reaction of apathy, and we have the reaction of anxiety, two reactions I think we still have to the Christmas story today. But we also have the reaction of adoration, and we find that in the story of the Magi, 
Now, who were these characters? Who were these magi? Sometimes we call them wise men. Sometimes we call them kings. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. We don't know for sure how many there were. The Bible doesn't actually say that. It doesn't say that they came in riding their camels. There's a lot of assumptions that we've made in the retelling of the story. But we do know that magi were very familiar, very well known in places like Babylon and Persia in ancient times. In fact, Daniel in the Old Testament was put in charge of a group of stargazers and magi during those days. They weren't just magicians or they weren't just stargazers. They seemed to be people of affluence because they had some great gifts. And they also seemed to be people of influence uh, because they marched right into Herod and demanded where the new king was. And so these are very interesting characters coming from the east, coming following a star and coming looking for the new king, the Messiah. So why did they come? We often talk about the star and there's a lot of talk in the news right now about the Bethlehem star on December 21st. I'm not sure that that was the same kind of star that shows up at the birth of Jesus, but they were following some sign in the sky. But there was more than that. There were actually prophecies that were available in ancient times beyond the Hebrew people that people in the East knew about and were watching for. Here's just one of them. You can find it if you read the story, very strange story, in Numbers chapter 22 to 24. In Numbers 22, we read about a prophet, not a Hebrew prophet, not a prophet from Israel, but a prophet from another nation by the name of Balaam. And some of you have heard the story. It's a strange one. Balaam has a donkey and the donkey ends up talking to him and the donkey sees the angel and Balaam doesn't. All of that is in the story, so go read it at some point. But Balaam was conscripted to give a curse to the people of God, to Israel. But in the end, God intervenes, and what Balaam ends up doing is he gives a blessing to the people of God in kind of four different stages. And in the fourth stage of that blessing, listen to what Balaam says. He says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter, a ruler, will rise out of Israel. There's an example of an ancient prophecy about a star and about a new king coming out of Israel that was available beyond the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew people of ancient times. And so the Magi come not just because of a sign or a star in the sky, but they come because of this ancient prophecy that was known outside the Hebrew nation. And when they come, they bring gifts that are fit for a king. Now, a lot of interpretation has been done, been done on these gifts, but I think they do mean something to us. Gold often speaks of royalty. And frankincense often speaks of deity because it was used in offerings that were burnt to the gods. And myrrh speaks of humanity because it was often used in burial. And so we have gold, frankincense, and myrrh talking about the royalty, the deity, and the humanity of Jesus, and speaking especially about his coming death. All of that is packed into this gift-giving in this uh, season when the Magi come to visit Jesus. Well, this is what Matthew wants us to understand, I think. 
wants us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment to all those prophecies, that he is the king that they've been waiting for in the line of David. He, and he isn't just a king of a select group, a regional group, but the presence of these people from the nations show that Jesus is king of the nations as well. And that's an important part of the gospel story. So let me ask you today, what is your response to the birth announcement of King Jesus? Even as you hear it maybe for the first time this year, maybe you've heard it for the 40th time, maybe you can't count the times that you've heard the birth announcement of Jesus. But what's the reaction in your soul? Is it apathy or anxiety? Or I hope that there's room for adoration, that there's room for worship as we hear the birth announcement of Jesus. So my encouragement is don't miss Christmas this year. Make an effort to acknowledge and worship Jesus as the King.